This morning I want to look at Exodus chapter 3, and we'll look at verse 1 through 5. Um, I thought I would be finishing this week, but I have one more week, and so this last sermon is almost in two parts. I'm going to leave you hanging, uh, with, but I'll leave you hanging with the scripture we're going to be talking about next week, and I want you to um, read ahead and be prepared. But this week we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 3, and if you, if you haven't been with us the last several weeks, we've been moving from um, the very beginning story of Moses from when he was born all the way up through his growth and adulthood uh, to him murdering somebody, and now we find him in the desert tending sheep, um, the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1 through 5 says this, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. And then Moses said, I will now turn aside to see the great sight, why the bush does not burn up. And so when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the burning bush and said, Moses, Moses. I want to talk about this part particularly here. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Last week we talked about the importance of the small things we do in life how it is the common everyday decisions, the common everyday life that God does his best work. We tend to want to strive uh, to be known, to be noticed, to be seen. We want to have an effective ministry for the kingdom of God. We want to be used mightily for him, but some of us cannot be faithful in the little things. And so God is calling us to a life where we walk with him in the mundane, simple things of life, that we would live a discipled life, a committed life in the small things. Some of the greatest things we will ever accomplish in our life will not be found in our organization that we run, the churches that we pastor, but it will be found in the small conversations between a husband and a wife or a mother and a child, small conversations between a friend or a neighbor. That's where God really uses us for his kingdom. Some of us need to be quit striving for greatness, and we need to find that our greatness is revealed in our everyday life. So many of you are doing things now, but you despise them. You're unhappy that you're not being used big enough, great enough, and in a way that you always dreamed. And so you despise the small things And you don't realize that what you are doing now is preparing you for what you're supposed to be doing tomorrow. And it is in your faithfulness to do the little things today that God prepares you to be used mightily tomorrow. You can't own your own business if you've not worked for somebody else. Well, you can, but you won't do a very good job at it. And so God calls us to first work for someone else before we're entrusted to own our own business. I'll be honest with you, some of you don't deserve a house. Some of you are not prepared to have a house. You can't even clean your apartment. Yet you want to own something um, when you've lived at a place where your only responsibility is not to deal with the AC, it's not to mow your yard, all of that's taken care of. 
All you have to do is keep your small apartment clean, and you can't even do that. And so you're asking the God to give you more, but you can't be faithful with the little that you have. And the Bible talks about this. He says, those that are faithful with the little I, and prove that they can be trusted with a the little, then I'll put them in charge of much. So some of us want houses, but we can't even manage the little that we got. And, and I kind of wrote this, and I, I really kind of at this place in my life where I believe some people don't need a husband or a wife. Um, what you need is to be faithful um, in any area of your life. I, I, I know people that want to get married, but they can't be faithful in their job. They can't be faithful in any area of their life. So the last thing they need to be doing is signing a covenant saying they're going to be faithful to somebody for life when they can't even be faithful in the little things. You can't take care of your car, but you're praying that you'll have a baby. You can't change the oil in your car. You can't make sure gas is in your car so you don't run out of gas. Uh, You know, somebody in here might have run out of gas this week. I mean, sometimes... Um, my wife will run the car all the way down to nothing, and then I won't pay attention to the fact that the car is almost out of gas, and I've almost run out of gas a couple of times. We have to learn to be faithful. And, and I'll be honest, I blame my wife all the time for that, but that's my responsibility when I get in the car to check to make sure there's gas in the car. Some of us can't even manage our car, but we want a baby. And, and so we're always hoping for more, but we can't prove to be faithful with the little. And so God is calling us to be faithful. And when you're faithful over what belongs to someone else, then God will come and give you rulership over what belongs to you. He will entrust it to you. So in the life of Moses here, we see that he has been faithful with uh, the things in Egypt. He has been faithful with Jethro's uh, flock. He's been faithful with something that is not his. And now God is calling him to be faithful with his people. And, and, and so he's proven himself. He's proven that he can be faithful in the little things. He can be faithful with little, so he can be trusted with much. So Moses is uh, taking care of his sheep. Jethro is, in this story that we're reading, is offering sacrifices at the foot of the mountain. And Moses becomes so curious, he goes up to the top of the mountain, and he sees a bush on fire but not consumed. I want to talk... Just pause there for a minute, and I don't have time to go into detail about this. This is really not uh, where I'm headed with my sermon. But this bush, this tree that is being burned, that is, there's a fire in the midst of it, but it's not being consumed, is a demonstration of the way that God is about to deliver his people. And um, in the Old Testament, whenever it talked about God being a consuming fire, he consumes that which he judges. And he does not consume other things. So at the same time that he's a consuming fire, it is speaking of him being a consuming fire in those things that he brings judgment on. This bush, um, it actually describes Jesus in the Old Testament in a prophetic book. It describes Jesus as a, as a small tree or a bush that is beautiful and wonderful. And so here we see a depiction of the way that God, the, that we see Christ, we see God as a consuming fire of judgment, we see this as a picture of what God really wants to do to deliver not only the Israelite people, but to deliver all people uh, for him. So you can do your own personal study on that. I think it's important. I couldn't help but not say it. I couldn't help but say it, so there's that. So we see this bush, and it's on fire but not consumed. 
And so Moses hears a voice from the bush speak and say, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. Now, the church has really talked about this a lot. Talked about the importance of holy ground and wherever God's presence is, it's holy ground. And, and this is holy ground. He speaks to that, but I think we have a misinterpretation of what this really meant and what was really about to take place here. We, we tend to think that I'm taking my shoes off so I can get closer to his presence and things of that nature. And so many sermons have been preached on this. But in the Semitic culture, both Egyptian and Midian, is not, this is not a sacred action taking your shoes off, and is not a liturgical action. In other words, we think you're supposed to take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. Where you're standing is holy. No. Priests, actually, when they went into the presence of God, always had their feet covered. And so it's really important for us to understand and take note of the fact of what is taking place. The only people in this day who took off their shoes were warriors. So God is speaking to him and saying to him, I want you to take your shoes off because we're going to do battle. We're going to wrestle one with another in this moment. And so he, he comes to Moses to reveal who he is and to show Moses who he is not. Because they take their shoes off because when they were fighting, uh, Romans were fighting in that day, they would take their shoes off so they could wrestle. They could dig their feet in, and they could get a position. And we're about to see a wrestling match happen and break out between God and Moses. So when, Moses, so when God tells Moses to take off his shoes, he's telling Moses, for the last 30 years, you learned all you could about being an Egyptian. But you and I are going to tussle, and you and I are going to find out who I am. You didn't come up to this mountain just to see what is going on. We're going to fight. And when you leave this mountain, you are walking out of here knowing exactly who I am. God was telling Moses, I'm going to reveal my credentials and we're going to fight. See, he has been raised up to know about many gods. He'd been raised up to know about the gods that the Egyptians worship. But he had never had a personal encounter with the great I am. And so he had to, at the same time God was going to reveal himself to him, he had to show him that he was the only one and true God. They had to fight it out. And so he gets up there and God gives Moses a commission. He says, I hear the cry of my people. Go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses says, no. I'm not going to do it. Now understand this, there's a bush on fire, it's not burning up, there is a voice coming from the middle of the fire of someone that you cannot see, and, God, and Moses says no. Now, when I was growing up, I grew up in a church that when God told you to do something, you did not have the luxury of saying no. So this was perplexing to me. Why is God dealing with somebody who has, who would say no to him? And over and over and over again in this text, you have Moses making excuses and telling God that he knows best and God must not 
have this right. And so, see, this upsets me because in the church I grew up in, I didn't know you were allowed to say no. I was actually taught songs in Sunday school and VBS like this. Yes, Lord, yes, to your will and to your way. Yes, Lord, yes, I will trust you and obey. When the Spirit speaks to me, with my whole heart I'll agree. And the answer will always be yes, Lord, yes. I don't think Moses knew that song, nor do I think Moses went to a VBS where he sang that song, nor do I think Moses went to a Sunday school where that was ingrained into his thinking. But I grew up in a church that you did not say no to God. And this troubled me because Moses said no, but God still wants to use him. There are some of you here today that if I'm being honest, all of us in some point in our life has said no to God. God has revealed something to our heart. He's shared something into our thinking. He's revealed something to us, and many of us have been guilty of saying no. Isn't it good that we have a God that is gracious and patient with us? My answer, I felt like, has always been yes, but in reality, there have been many times that I've said no. Understand this, a second time God asked him, and a second time Moses says no. <laughs> Do you understand the complexity of what's taking place here? This is a wrestling match. Now, you need to understand that Moses isn't some dummy that walked in off the street or off the field. He knows and he has encountered a divine being. He knows it. He's encountered a divine being and he knows it. He does not, however understand the immensity of what it is he's dealing with. Doesn't that sound familiar? That many of us, uh, at many phases of our life, in many intimate moments of our life, God speaks to us, and we know that it is a divine encounter. But I think many of us, it's lost on us just how immense this encounter is. Just how immense this being is that we're dealing with. Some of us enter into a conversation and we think that there are things that God asks from us that are debatable, but God will get his way. He is sovereign. He will do what he wants to do with you. And so he does, not, he does know from studying theology in Egypt, and, and he was a student of theology in Egypt, that if you could get God's name, you can control the God. And in Egypt, that was, that was important. If you knew the name... You could evoke and you could invoke the God. And so he, he then tries to be tricky and he says, well, I'm going to get his name because then I can be in control of what happens. And many of you use the many names of God that way to try to invoke and evoke him to do what you please. He's El Shaddai. He's my provider. He's my way maker. He's all that. And you're trying to evoke and invoke him to do what you want him to do. You want him to come when you want him to come, and you want him to leave when you want him to leave. And many of us operate like the Egyptians in using the name that we choose and we please. But God says something different when he responds. You use the name, they come. You use the name, they leave. You use their name, and, and, and blessings are released. You use the name, and curses are released. And so Moses is playing a little mind game and says, if I went, who would send me? And so then God responds 
in the Hebrew, it says this, Ektier Ashad Ektier, I am that I am. In Hebrew, this actually suggests, I have always been, therefore I will always be. God wasn't giving Moses his name. He was actually giving Moses his nature. Many of us want his name so we can control them, but we deny his nature. We don't want to know him. We want to know his name so we can invoke what we want out of him. (laughs) So God is saying to him in response, I know you think you can get my name and do what you want with me. And I know you think you can get my name and say it, and I'm going to come when you call me. But I need you to know that before you call me, I'm already there. And when you leave this mountain, I'll be there too. And when you go down to Midian to free my people, I'll be there. Because I am here. I have always been here. And I will always be here. Etier, etier, ashad etier. I have always been, therefore I always will be. In the Greek Septuagint, it is actually translated this way. Ponto katier, which means who was and is and is to come. He who was and is and is to come. But it's not as much of a revelation of his name as it is a revelation of his nature. This is why when God reveals his name, it says Moses saw the backside of God in the Bible. He didn't see the backside of God because God doesn't have a backside. He's not made of flesh and blood like you and me. But it said in in the Bible that when he heard the name of God, that he saw the backside of God. When it says he saw the backside of God, it's because God is an eternal being and he saw the past. That's why Moses could write the book of Genesis in the first person, even though he wasn't there. Because God had revealed the past to him and he wrote the book of Genesis as if he were there in person. And when he saw the backside of God, he began to write, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. Because when he saw the back of God, he saw the past. I've been asking, I've been asked uh, by an atheist why I would believe that the Bible is authentic when there's so many errors in it. And I responded by asking, name an error. And um, just name just one, and he said, well, the books of the Bible... Uh, The book of Numbers, for instance, has said that Moses died. Yet we we know and from research that Moses wrote the book of Numbers. So how is it that somebody who died wrote the book of Numbers? And some of you are probably thinking, well, that is a little bit puzzling. The devil is a punk that way. But really it's very simple because when Moses saw the backside of God, he saw the past. God said in Numbers 12, 5, 8, To the prophets I speak in dreams and visions, but to Moses I speak face to face. So Moses saw God's face. So if the backside was the past, then God's face is the future. 
Can you imagine how surprised Moses would have been when he was writing the book of the Numbers? And his hand was getting out of control, and he was talking about all these things. And he began to write, and Moses died. Wait a minute, what? I died. And um, so, he, so God reveals the past to him, and he writes about the past, and God reveals the future to him. And he writes in the book of Numbers the future, because he was Ektier Ashad Ektier. I have been, therefore I will always be. And he revealed to Moses that he has always been. That's the nature of God that we need to understand. And so as we move in times, into times of crisis, like what we are in today, God was, has been and he had, will always be. He did not, he will not, we are praying for him to show up in the midst of this, but he was already here before we got here. Because we live and move and find our being in God and time exists in God and God is eternal. And so wherever as we move through time, we think God is moving through time with us. But time is actually moving inside of God. And so everywhere we go and every season of our life, the nature of God is revealed because he is always there. <laughs> So God reveals his revelatory nature. And Moses a second time says, nope, not going to do it. And makes an excuse. And a third time, God asks him a third time. And Moses says, nope, not going to do it. And then God asks him a fourth time. And, he, and, and Moses says, nope, I'm not going to do it. He says, I don't have the power to do this. A fourth time, he says, no. Now, you don't understand, kind of as I'm reading through this, I kind of get into a place where I'm like, God, just kill him. Just kill him and go pick somebody else. Like, you know, like, because he's annoying. He just don't know how to say yes. And quite honestly, if you say no to me twice, like, I'll, I'll do more than once. I'll give you a second time. If you say no to me twice, I'm just not going to ask you again. And so God just continually, faithfully begins to work through this with Moses. And um, you have to understand, God is just. And he just doesn't, like, like he can kill you. Like, and a matter of fact, in, in, in later on, um, in chapter 4, verse 18, I believe, it actually says that God commissions Moses, and we're going to talk about this next week, he commissions Moses, and because something that Moses didn't do, God actually shows up to kill him in the middle of the night. Now, that'll disrupt some of you in your New Testament, you know, Holy Ghost, believe that God doesn't function that way anymore. No, he killed his son, just so we're clear. And, and, I, and I allowed that to happen. He's sovereign that way, and he shows up and, um, and to, to come against, with judgment, um, those that are full of sin. And I, I just want to throw this out there. This will just disturb you, and then we'll just move on. I'll just throw this out there, and we'll see if it sticks. But I read uh, something by, I think it was Charles Spurgeon. It might have been Spurgeon, or it might have been somebody else. And I posted a video about it on our daily devotion page. I don't even know if anybody looks at that. But I want to, it said that, he said on this quote of Spurgeon preaching, he said, um, he was speaking of sin, and he said, God doesn't send sin to hell. He sends you to hell. You need to recalibrate your life. And a lot of us want to put all the emphasis off on sin, but sin doesn't go to hell. We go to hell. And so God is a just judge who does not take no crap off nobody. I just can't believe I just said that, but it's just the way it works, okay? 
And we need to understand that about God. This is why when we enter His presence, we have fear. We enter with trepidation and fear, and it is a healthy fear. We should be afraid of a God that will kill you because you are out of line. And that's why we plead the blood of Jesus over our life. That's why uh, the firstborns uh, in the, during the plagues pled the blood of Jesus over their life to be protected and to be saved. And we're going to connect that in chapter 4, verse 18, because God would have rather killed him in that moment than him go down to, inv- to invoke and to call plagues down on people when his son would have been killed in the process. And so I want to talk about that in a little bit next week, and that's what we've been building to um, over the last several weeks. Um, but God is fighting with Moses. And then a fifth time, now I love this, God asked a fifth time, and Moses says no, and then finally Moses submits after the fifth no. And he says, in spite of my no, I will do what you ask. I ask God, why did he say no? Why did you endure his stubbornness? Why did you tolerate his arrogance when you asked him to do it? And he kept saying no. And I believe God said to me this. The reason I fought with Moses is I realized that if Moses would say no to me and I'm God, how much more will he say no to the enemy? when he stands in the presence of those who would defile the name of the living God. God said, first of all, Sean, I don't surround my people with yes people. I don't surround myself with yes people. Most people I called in the word said no on some level. I called Jeremiah, he said no. I called Isaiah, he said no. I called Jonah, he said no. I called Mary, she said no. I choose people who say no. I choose people who say no because any yes that is easily offered is valueless. It is a valueless yes. We make it too easy for people to say yes. I have I've met people that go on a date and then on the same night go tell their friends, I am in love with this person. You are a liar. You don't even know that person in one night. You're a liar. You have feelings. You're infatuated with that person. But you aren't in love with that person. How can you love that which you do not know? And many of us get saved and we are in love with God, but love is not a destination. Love is a journey. And we have to understand that God has called us to enter into a relationship beyond just this temporary, fleeting moment. And anybody can be committed to to you in a relationship for a moment, but it takes a special kind of person who loves you that will endure with you for life. That's why we got to be careful in the church of who we raise up in the ministry. And let me tell you, one of the most annoying things about me and my leadership here is that I don't allow people to say yes very easily. I create multiple opportunities for people who are called into ministry and want to serve in ministry. I create multiple opportunities for people to say no. Because if we create a platform for an easy yes, we are building something that will never last. Because yeses that come easy don't have value. If you have somebody that you've created multiple opportunities for them to say no, and they say yes and they stick with you, those are people that God can use 
in the end. Every time Moses said no, he increased his worth. He became more valuable to God. There's something else this fight, this wrestling match with Moses and God revealed. God needed to know that Moses was humbled by the desert, but not humiliated by it. He was broken by the desert, but he wasn't destroyed by the desert. That he, had, he could plant him and it not bury him. And sometimes God will plant us in the most obscure places, but some of us believe that it is our death warrant Some of us stay buried and never come back and manifest life. And God is watching you to see how you handle your desert moment. He's watching. God wants to humble you, but He doesn't want to humiliate you. God wants to break you, but He doesn't want to destroy you. I'm going to say that again. God wants to break you. See, I, I'm not even, I'm pre-recording this, but that bothered people. I know that prophetically that bothered people. And I want you to understand, no one has a problem with a cowboy breaking a horse. And, and there is a breaking process that happens where your will has to submit to his will. Where your direction that you want to run has to submit to the direction He wants to take you. I think it is particularly ironic that God chose a donkey, one of the most stubborn of all these kind of animals, right? One of the, one of the most stubborn of all to ride on. And that donkey took Jesus in where Jesus wanted to go. Can I ask you a question? Are you one of those people that have such poor theology that you think that God doesn't want to break you? And if that's the case, since you refuse to be broken, can I ask you another question? Can you ever be used for Him and by Him? See, I I just am in a place in my life where I don't want to live this masochistic, sadistic, painful glass half empty, depressed kind of life in my walk with God, but I've come to understand some things about God that it is this, that His way are higher than our ways, meaning they take precedence. And we must submit. And He calls us to die daily, pick up our cross and follow Him. There is a breaking that must take place that what is on the inside might be made real on the outside. So he's testing Moses and make sure that what he did to break him and humble him didn't totally humiliate and destroy him because that's the kind of person that God can completely use. Some of us have been in church our whole life. Some of us are in ministry. Some of us are pastors and have not been humbled enough. Yet we're leading people. We're leading people in a way that is not showing we can truly be submissive ourselves. Because many people have gone through so many trials and suffering, so many problems, so many pain and heartache that they no longer even have a backbone. They've been been destroyed by their desert. 
They've lost all will to fight. They have no desire and passion anymore in their life. And God needed to make sure that Moses could fall on his knees in humility, but also jump back up and get in the fight again. Because this is the kind of person that he was calling to set his people free. God was testing Moses, and Moses was testing God. Moses said five times, five in the Bible being the number of grace. Moses had served the Egyptian gods and knew that the Egyptians' gods did not know grace. He said, if I'm going to serve this God, I need to know that he will grant me favor in spite of my mess. I want to read this. I want to read this scripture that I was referring to earlier to prepare us for next week. Exodus 4, 18 through 26 says this. So Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please, let me go and return to my brethren. So after he says yes to God, he returns to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said, Please, let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt. Now, I want to stop here, and I want to take note of something that he wrestled with God He said yes to God, but he submitted to his father-in-law of who he was under the authority of and asked his father-in-law if he could go. God, who spoke to him from a bush, a bush that was burned but not consumed, a, a, a voice came out of it, and this was a divine being. This was the great I am. This was God. This was an experience where he submitted his life to that, but then he went and submitted his life to his earthly leadership. This is very important, and I'll be honest with you, this is lost on our generation. It's lost on our generation because we don't have faith that the same God that can speak from the midst of the burning bush can speak to those that are in authority over us to release us. We don't, have, we don't believe in God. We, we say we have faith in God and we can hear from him, but we don't believe that, he, that, that the same God who can speak from a bush can also speak to those that are in authority over us and let us know it is time to release them. We don't believe in God that much. We only believe in God halfway. And so I think that's important. I won't get off on that, but that's, I, that's really important for our culture, I think. It's really important. Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go return to Egypt for all the men who sought your life are dead. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey and he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hands and the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all these wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Now, so I say to you, let let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son your firstborn. And it came to pass on the way (laughs) at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. So God is giving him commands, telling him what to do, blah, blah, blah. And then it came to pass on the way at an encampment when they're camping out that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Talking about Moses. 
Then Zipporah took a sharp stone, cut off the foreskin of her son. Awesome. And she cast it at the feet of Moses and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. And then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about what happens when God comes to kill you. And for all of us, for Moses in the desert, his journey of preparation was God trying to kill the parts of Moses that would prevent him from living the life that God called him to live. I want to talk about the importance of a seed dying, being, being planted and dying so that what is on the inside might be made real on the outside. I'm making a proclamation that just like the life of Moses, I believe the life of Moses was a seed that died so that many might come to life. And I want to make a proclamation to you this morning that God is trying to kill you so that what is in you can come to life to those around you. God is trying to kill you so that you might bear fruit and those that are in famine and hungry and starving for the things of God might be nourished on the life you live because of the death you paid. God is calling us to death that His life might reign inside of us. Well, we love you very much and we're thankful for who you are. We give you praise this morning for your word. We're thankful for the way you reveal your nature to us. God, I pray that it changes the way we engage you in prayer because we are trying to invoke and evoke you instead of just realizing that you are always where we are. God, help open the eyes of our understanding because where can we go from your presence? For you are always where we are. In your precious and holy name we pray. Everybody said? Amen.